People are always invoking evolutionary psychology for everything. Why do men hang around asking women out? Oh, to improve their reproductive success. Every damn thing, religion, art, it can all be explained by evolutionary psychology. But in our hearts, we know that evolutionary psychology is only sort of accurate because it really doesn't capture what's most interesting about our lives. It doesn't capture that desire to embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 195 of Embrace the Void, where we are rapidly approaching episode 200 with no plan in sight. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking about popular misconceptions about evolutionary psychology. So let's evolve our psychology. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Lindsay Osterman, Associate Professor of Psychology at Roanoke College and co-host of Serious Inquiries Only, We Are On The Same Page, and What The Fup, Downloads From The Secret Ghost Library. (laughs) Lindsay, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. I am in the right void, right? Oh, it's definitely the right void to be in. Um, And we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, It's nice to... I'm excited uh, to be here. Yeah, no, we've had some really fun chats over on Twitch and various things about um, various kinds of spider genitalia, and that's been a lot of fun. And I wanted to get you on to do a little (laughs) bit more valuable psychom of that sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's spider palps, to be precise. Oh, I'm all about palps. No, 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 palps are a big deal. You know, quivering palps is really where it's at. Mm, Yeah, nothing better. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Lindsay, um, for folks who don't know, uh, is a member of our horror show of a podcast family. And I'm happy to have her on before we talk about um, some specific sciencey kinds of things. Do you want to let folks know a little bit about your background and your own sort of personal interests and how you ended up in this um, den of vice and iniquity that is podcasting? Mm, yeah, boy, that is the question. I've been asking myself that a lot for the last <laughs> last couple of years. Uh, no, so yeah. So as you said, I'm I'm an associate professor of psychology, and I I teach a lot of research methods courses and stats courses and social psych, and and I also teach an evolutionary psych course, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in terms of research interests, like 
I don't know, I've meandered a bit according to the students that I that I mentor and what they're interested in looking at. But um, my most active research line right now is on parasocial relationships, mm. which is a term that I used to have to define for people, um, <laughs> but it seems to have entered the public lexicon. As Did a, they now send you point. awkward emails defining it for you? <laughs> That, that hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it's on the horizon. So you're doing a lot of field experience is what you're saying. You're getting a lot of direct research on this particular topic yes. of interest. What is mm-hmm. your what is your sense of the parasocial at this moment? It seems like it is a rapidly evolving social issue. Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, and do you want to um, go ahead and define it for people? For maybe if you, I don't want to assume that nobody has any idea what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's fair. So, so parasocial relationships are these enduring bonds that people can form with media characters. So podcast hosts, for instance, television characters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fictional characters, you know, people develop these these relationships. They're very interesting, right? Because they they seem to to feel and function in many ways very similar to social relationships. Um, But you know, they're Mm -hmm. they're formed in these one sided contexts. And I think I think that they what they look like has really started to shift over the past couple of decades because of the evolution of social media. I think, you know, what used Mm -hmm. to be entirely one-sided is now developing like some two-sided elements to Mm -hmm. them. So, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to to research right now. I think that's (laughs) in in pandemic land. Yeah. It's a good point about the sort of shift towards the two-sidedness of it, because I do think that, I think the conventional wisdom on parasocial relationships is that they're only bad, like they're only ever like harmful, essentially, and to be avoided. And now Mm -hmm. I feel like there is a little bit of shift towards like, well, maybe certain kinds of like there can be certain kinds of functional parasocial relationships or something. But you have to be very thoughtful, I think, in how you deal with it, especially when there's a monetary factor involved. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, I, I'm I, one of the reasons that I that I wanted to get into research on it was because of that sort of classical conception of them as harmful or mm-hmm. negative. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, like I, I tend to see most things through this sort of evolutionary lens, and to me, it's like, okay, well, these are, I mean, they're just they're just sort of like co opting social mechanisms at base, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they, I don't think that they having parasocial relationships is inherently bad or inherently harmful, right? Mm -hmm. If it was replacing actual social contact, that might be a problem, but that doesn't seem to be the case for most people. So, yeah. Yeah. It does seem to me that it's one of these, there's many of these examples of like how emerging technology is taking, you know, basic human desires and then like combining them, of course, with a capitalist incentive and the product are these kind of, consumable versions of these things that are healthy and valuable for us and then like i think then there's a second you know like another wave that comes along that tries to like recapture you know authenticity or something even in those kinds of environments and so you have people who are doing like you know mixing of parasocial and like criticism of parasocial you know so like for example i open embrace the void you know welcome friends and like even the use of the word friends there is something that i've thought a lot about because like i was i I picked that before you know i had talked or thought a lot about parasocial stuff but like that in that word could sort of trigger kind of more implication than it should in certain people's minds and that could be particularly Mm. like could be problematic or not you know like i i find it very tricky especially when you add in the, the layer of like 
you know, people like groups on Facebook where you're interacting with these folks and you can have conversations with them. Like if you start to just yeah. become friends with them, is that bad or is that just like sort of a healthy evolution of this weird dynamic? What do you think? Is that bad? <laughs> I think it's, I think, it, I think it go back to, you know, it just depends on how it's done, right? Like if you're doing it in a way where you're like, I want to make a bunch of fake friends who will be like, yes, people and will like reinforce mm. my ego or something like that. And I think that could be very harmful. But if it's like, no, I just, these people have like interests and I think they're entertaining and want to hang out with them. Like, then I don't think there's a real, it doesn't feel any different to me than like the way people used to think about online dating versus how they think about online dating now. Right. There's That's a interesting there's comparison. a bit more of a power dynamic, but really, in a lot of ways, there isn't. Like a lot of those online dating environments often involve various weird sort of parasocial power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. As it, so, so you in answering that, I feel like that's from from your perspective about whether it's harmful or not. Yeah, I mean, I guess I come, think that that. Yeah, I guess I am coming at it from like the perspective of being like someone who you know people listen to the podcast and form that kind of relationship with and who I you know interact with those people in these groups though I also think it's also weird because it's like there are individuals who I interacted with like long before like any of this got significantly off the ground and like yeah. are those relationships different than the people who like I interact with for the first time after you know doing this stuff for several years or something like that right. So, yeah. yeah, it's just it's very interesting how many different kind of layers there are and, and the way that like, you know, and this maybe this can get us into talking about your evolutionary psych stuff a little bit like, you know, is this the result of our, you know, a brain that evolved at one point in time being hijacked by a new environment that it's not sort of evolved to deal with in that kind of way? Um, let me let me ask you just broadly speaking, how do you feel as someone mm -hmm. teaching evolutionary psych? How is that field going? Like, what is your top line take about evolutionary psychology at this point? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the discipline itself or how it's represented? or those... Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, because I, I do think, like, I, I really, uh, I like the evolutionary framework for understanding psychology. I think that there's a ton of good work that's going on in this area. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the people that are, shaping the public conversation about it tend not to be mainstream evolutionary psychologists yeah. or, or some of them are not evolutionary psychologists at all. And um, that's a problem. Like I think that the, the image that a lot of people have associated with that, um, that phrase evolutionary psychology is, is not really what I recognize as, as the field. Can you distinguish so, a little bit? Can you give like an example of, like one major difference in how you think things are done or how, what people believe in the field versus the pop sort of evolutionary psych stuff people are getting? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, um, for example, I think that findings tend to get oversimplified a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, the mating literature, I think, is a really good example of this, right? There, right. Are, uh, there are a number of people... Um, <laughs> who are using like very, very narrow aspects of what we know from the mating literature to like justify conservative ideas about female sexual purity and male promiscuity and, and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when in actuality, right. Like something like parental investment theory, which is what a lot of those kinds of justifications are drawn from is like just one piece describing mm -hmm. our mating psychologies. Right. It's a lot more mm -hmm. complicated than that. 
you know, there's a there's a rich literature on the fact that like short term mating behavior, which is just like sex outside of a relationship, casual sex, uh, appears to be normative, right? That gets ignored a lot by folks who you know have this sort of culturally mm-hmm. conservative worldview and want to use the language of evolution and biology to justify that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, so you've got that sort of oversimplification, and sometimes I think it's it's ideologically motivated. Um, sometimes it's just because the person talking about it doesn't, doesn't have a a sort of a rich understanding of that literature. Right. And that's, Mm -hmm. that is what it is. Um, yeah. Do you feel like there's a large segment of academic, like the academic people that you interact with who buy into this idea that some folks accuse them of, which is to, to say that like evolution stops at the neck or like to reject the idea that the, that our psychology, that our behavior is the result of evolution full stop do i um can you clarify the question do you mean like is that a a a widespread view i mean so here's here's the here's what i would say right the one popular conception that i think is presented about evolutionary psych is that people who genuinely believe in like the biological part of evolutionary psychology or believe in like these stories of, you know, people so far back, like having this particular behavior be adaptive. And that's why we are the way we are today, that mm-hmm. they've been kind of run out of academia and in, in re- I mean, replaced by people who are like, you know, all of this is cultural and, you know, our, our minds didn't evolve. We're blank slates in this kind of way. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So not only do I think that uh, I don't think that evolutionary psychologists are getting run out of academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also don't think that the blank slate view is is very common at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do hear a lot like so, um, you know, Thomas and I broke down Deborah So's book not too long ago, The End of Gender. Mm-hmm. And folks that are making arguments like the ones that she is making about gender like to trot out um, the idea that like blank slateism has taken over mm-hmm. like mainstream psychology and, um, and biology even. Um, and it's, I, I just, I don't see that happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't even, I guess I would I sort of, what kind of evidence do you feel like there is on one side or the other of that? Like, you know, is it pretty easy to find papers where people are continuing to do like work that, that, contradicts a blank slatist approach like you know the people that you talk to in school is it just like the general view is everyone agrees that you know we we have evolved minds but we're not quite sure what things evolved for what reasons and such like that yeah i think it's i think it's uh it's pretty mainstream to accept that like there are um yes that the that the brain is an evolved organ i think there are wider um, disagreements about like how many insights we can gain about evolved mechanisms, right. With Mm -hmm. evolutionary psychologists thinking that that is something that we can, we can learn about. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. some people think that that's less possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the blank slate versus, um, biological contributions to psychology and behavior like that, that feels much like the nature nurture debate to me. And that it's not ask, really yeah. a debate uh-huh. that anybody's having anymore, right? Uh-huh. We we know that um, we we know that we are highly social creatures, we're cultural creatures, and that those those things are huge, meaningful influences. Th- those tend not to be left out of evolutionary explanations, right? Which I think is an important thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, the the way that we think about things um, is 
is obviously influenced by um, by our our natural histories, right? Mm-hmm, so I think mm-hmm. that I think that is a mainstream position, even among people that that aren't like working um, squarely in evolutionary psychology. Are there any other like major misconceptions that you feel like people have when they're like getting a, a view of of evolutionary psychology from Twitter or something like that? Hmm, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, this is related to what we were just talking about, but I mm-hmm. think that a lot of people think that this is a, a position that endorses like genetic determinism. Mm-hmm. And that that really, really is a, a huge misunderstanding of evolutionary explanations. Like mm-hmm. all of the things that we talk about are are interactionist, right? They're, they're about um, the contributions of, of sort of these evolved mechanisms as they sort of manifest in these environments, right? Mm-hmm. So um, and it's not just a lip service thing, right? Like there are, we could get into this if, if we have time for it, but like mm-hmm. a, a lot of research that I find really compelling is about, um, evolved learning architecture, mm. right? Um, one thing that we talked about on SIO a while back was this literature on, um, how, how babies seem to learn about plant safety, which is a it's a social <laughs> learning mechanism, right? That's it's it's just funny. I've never heard the category plant safety before, but I immediately <laughs> understand what it means in relation to small children. So yes, continue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, have you seen? I didn't I didn't see these until after we'd recorded about this, but it blew my mind. Have you seen the videos of, the, of people trying to put babies on grass? Uh, yes, yes, I do love those videos. They're amazing. Yeah. So so yeah, yeah. this is like an like overcoming an aversion reaction essentially while also training i assume aversion reactions to the things you don't want them to like rub all over themselves yeah exactly right mm-hmm. i mean the 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 program of of um this researcher annie Wirtz is essentially looking at um well she's she's observed the fact that infants seem to have uh what she calls like a um a behavioral immune system to plants mm. because so many plants in the environment, right. Can be dangerous to touch, right. Certainly dangerous to eat, you know, so babies stick everything in their mouths, but like a, not plants in oh, a fairly stri- striking way. Huh. Um, but, but yeah, so her, but her <laughs> program of research better about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These are definitely like species specific types of things, right. Interesting. But, um, yeah. But so uh, her whole program of research is like trying to describe, um, you know, what is triggering the aversion, right? So she's looking at different features of plants and trying to figure out like, what is the shape of this adaptation? What are the cues that are, that are triggering the aversion? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and also looking at like, so how does that aversion go away? How do infants learn about particular plants and, and their safety over time? You know, what are the milestones there developmentally? What does this look like cross-culturally? That's, that's um, some work that she's, um, she's digging into now. Uh, but that's so it she is she this is a an obviously evolutionarily motivated theory right mm-hmm. she's she this is mainstream evolutionary psych but it's also like centrally about social learning it's centrally about culture um and mm-hmm. i i think that people don't don't get that enough in sort of the public representation of evolutionary psych so how does she talk about or does she wrestle with the sort of language around how to describe that knowledge that that is sort of inborn within these in, i mean like the the baby's not learning to avoid grass by watching someone avoid grass right it has 
what appears to be, you know, like close enough to almost to use the word like innate, right? Innate kind of knowledge about, and it's not even accurate innate knowledge, right? It's wrong about some of the plants that are dangerous to it. And so you have to correct that knowledge, but it is an inborn kind of knowledge in that kind of way. How do we, how Mm -hmm. do we make sense of where that is and how it's being, is it like, is it still being culturally activated in some way, do we think? Or is it just like, it would be there, like, even if that baby had no sort of, observable experiences with other individuals or something. I think that's the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. And I don't know that, you know, the, the level of analysis that, that mm-hmm. she's using is, is directly addressing that question. Um, but I, I don't know, like, so another, another example of this that I think is similar is, um, you know, the visual cliff research. Mm-hmm. Like the babies won't um, go off a cliff that even if it's not a cliff. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and the, the original paper on that was, was comparative, right? Like they mm-hmm. didn't just have human infants. They had, um, infant animals from like a number of different species that learned to walk at particular times, mm-hmm. um, or, or became ambulatory at particular times. Right. Um, and so part of what they were showing is that like, you know, this particular visual feature, right. That's associated with cliffs seems to be triggering an adverse reaction, right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. once, once an animal reaches like a, a functionally relevant stage, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess like, yeah, and this, I think maybe this gets a little bit into the scientific misinformation stuff, because like you describe those things as being sort of mainstream. And then the reasonable question I think that comes to mind is if that's true, why is there this broad narrative that a lot of people believe that like, evolutionary psych has been run out of uh, academia in exchange for blank slateism. Um, and like, maybe they would fall back on like, well, it's, you know, with regard to issues around gender or race or something, we still have to, you know, adhere to blank. Well, you know, we'll adopt it when it's neutral, but we won't adopt it when it's sort of socially charged, maybe. I mean, would you say that there is like, let's talk about gender a little bit, right? Are, is uh-huh. it, is it general sort of conventional agreed information that there are some like evolved psychological differences between biological sexes or how would, how would you frame that in your class? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that it is mainstream to, to think that there are some, some differences, but I would qualify that by saying that, you know, the, the sexual dimorphisms in, in humans, right. We are not as dimorphic as, as some species are. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there are, according to like, you know, mating histories and things, some, some species show like hardly any differentiation between males and females. Right. And some mm-hmm. show really large differentiation um, compared to some of our closest cousins. Right. We seem to be less sexually dimorphic than some species. Um, and most of the, most of the, the psychological differences that you see um, are specifically related to mating. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know if we want to get into this or not, but it sounds like one, a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is there is an Ooh, area we're, go- that... we're actually going to talk about palps. This is great. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about palps. I was going to going to talk about. No, it's fine. We can talk about area... boring mammals. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, ba- mammals really. Yeah, they do. Ugh. They do need to get with the program. Zero palps. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Their dicks don't fall off when we have sex. It's not fun at all. Um, Everyone should go read Children of Time if you want to understand why I have this very weird interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And join us on Twitch. Mm, Um, Yeah. So there there is an area about uh, um, gender differences in cognition that is more controversial. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it was something that that was kind of presented when I when I took evolutionary psych in grad school as mainstream. And um, it wasn't something that we focused a lot of time on, but I learned about it, mm-hmm. um, about uh, gender differences in spatial reasoning. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've come across this one. Yeah, it's often, I think, brought up in as sort of an explanation for gender gap differences, I think, in things like coding or something. Or yeah, yeah. One of those. STEM more broadly. STEM, okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the way that the way that I learned about this was that um you know there there was there were like two hypotheses about why this might be the case and it was it was based on animal models right comparative work um and part, one hypothesis has to do with sexual division of labor that was hypothesized to to have happened around the pleistocene mm-hmm. um and another hypothesis was about was rooted in like uh mating behavior essentially so there's there's a number of mammals that show like um they show well like if you're talking about the the um like brain structural differences they showed mm-hmm. like pretty large differences in like hippocampal size and this is correlated with uh, differences in like ability to run mazes and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, again, it's, it's related to mating males in these particular species have much larger home ranges to find mates, uh, than the females. And so they, mm-hmm. they develop these differences essentially. So that, that work was applied to humans several decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been observed fairly reliably in the literature that, uh, there are brain differences and that there are, um, but between males and females and uh, like spatial reasoning differences, especially in the realm of like uh, mental rotation tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, like when I was exposed to it, the way that I learned about it was like, yeah. So because of these, and, and also there's some other mechanisms here as well. Um, males tend to have an advantage in mental rotation tasks and women tend to have a, a, an advantage in object location memory. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, at least the way that we talked about it is like they weren't massive differences, right? But you know, and, and and by the way, it was never connected to this this question of like STEM representation. Mm-hmm. That never would have occurred to me. And so once I started hearing this th- this research crop up in conversations about um, gender equity in STEM, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I gen- from from the way I'd been exposed to this research originally, I was like, wow, how did you get there from here? Just because the but, gap is so small, generally, that it's, it's a weird explanation to fall on. Well, and also, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of different things that would inform somebody's success in STEM. Sure. Right. So this these narrow sort of cognitive abilities that are probably you know flexible in the way that I learned about them, mm-hmm. like it just it didn't seem like it should be that large a contributor, right? And also, mm-hmm. right, even if it is. I, I think it's fairly uncontroversial that there are systemic structural differences that disadvantage women and have mm-hmm. historically in STEM. So like one way or the other, it was like, well, it doesn't mean you have, you can't deal with these problems. Right. Um, but what I have learned more recently is that like, yeah, this hypothesis is maybe not as well supported as I was led to believe in grad school. Oh, like replication <laughs> crisis kind of not as well supported or like. Not like, exactly. I mean, the, uh-huh. the difference itself seems to be um, real. Mm-hmm. and replicable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of whether this is the product of an evolved adaptation, there's some there's some real question about that. And like there are, um, as I said, th- there's differences in like hippocampus volume and things like that between men and women. Um, but 
the the idea that like a, a purely sort of experiential explanation for that has been ruled out is is not that is not solid, mm-hmm. which is kind of a interesting. Like I, I just sort of dove into this again like a couple of months ago, and I was actually kind of floored by this. That's really so, interesting. I don't know. And you also mentioned flexibility there, and this is I think something that is a um a confusion I think that is frequently implicit in discussions of this stuff that like if something evolved all that long you know time ago it must be basically unchangeable now or it would take an equally long period of time to change it now um whereas you know my sense is that to some extent at least like this stuff is impacted by social reinforcement one way or the other right our societies can enhance or you know, like, and this is a concern of conservatives or alternatively undercut, right, sexual dimorphism. Um, is that is that sort of held up in the literature that the flexibility is impacted by cultural structures in that way? Oh, 100 mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say that that's a that's a, a salient, a salient fact in, in every evolutionary analysis that I've seen of traits like this. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, in in large part too, just because we are such such highly social and cultural animals, right? I mean, be, because of that, and I you know I I see that as part of our evolutionary history as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that, yeah, there's a lot of these mechanisms that are sort of built to be flexibly informed by social and cultural context. Mm-hmm. And I feel like. And this gets so this will get us into talking about the misinformation a little bit. I, you know, I'll I'll put forward a thesis, and I'm curious if this is just jars you know uh, gels with what you've experienced, right? I my feeling is a lot of the time the kind of narratives that we've been talking about here that get put forward are often in the service of essentially not not saying that the status quo is good, right? So not committing like an overt naturalist fallacy, but committing a kind of covert one that says the status quo is functionally unchangeable un- to such an extent yes. that like we shouldn't put a lot of resources towards trying to change it. Is that sort of where you feel like the, a lot of the buck stops with these kinds of um, what seem to be at least misunderstandings, if not overt misinformation of the state of the science? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's not the kind of claim that I think you would hear um most evolutionary psychologists making. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's more of the claim again that's be- being made by some of these actors in the public sphere that are just trying to justify the status quo or just trying to I think you said it well, right? If if not justify it or say it's good, then say that it's unchangeable, right? Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. Yeah, the, the the malleability kind of thing where I feel like there's a lot of implicit like and, and you see it, you see it made explicit, I think, by folks like Charles Murray, who will say, you know, the gap in the IQ is not going to change very much. And like putting a bunch of resources towards education and social systems is not going to change this difference because mostly these are just like deeply rooted biological differences or something like that. Um, yeah. And yeah. he's wrong on many fronts. Yeah, I, I do have that sense. Um, <laughs> so what are other like areas in which you feel like, you know, we're having a lot of issues when it comes to SCICOM, this kind of science communication stuff, um, and where there's a lot of like misunderstandings running around that you've been been focused on recently? Hmm. Um, like spe- specific questions? Yeah, well, like I know, for example, that you've been spending a lot of time on trans issues recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. What do you see as sort of the major sort of sticking points of mis- misconceptions 
like that are being put forward around i know there's a lot right but like you have a sense of which ones you feel like are real sort of crucial bottlenecks for misunderstanding here yeah i i mean i think the the fundamental one is this um this I mean, it's become a bumper sticker, maybe literally at this point that, you know, there are only two genders mm-hmm. or only two sexes, right? Just somehow, you know, biology is real. Some Was that Marjorie Taylor Greene that had that sign? Right. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. Office for, um, and I, you know, like, I, you know, to, to go back to Deborah So, um, she she kind of reinforces, I think, this this just grossly oversimplified view of um, of biological sex and its relationship to gender in exactly that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So she talks about, you know, uh, sex cells or gametes as, you know, we have two sex cells, right. We have eggs and sperm. Mm -hmm. And so there are only two sexes and this becomes like sort of the basis of her entire arguments in terms of like trying to, I, to uh, invalidate genders other than essentially man or woman. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, this is this is a, a huge oversimplification, and it's a it's a it's a huge point of misinformation because I think that the the more mainstream understanding of biological sex is that there's variability, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's a relationship between chromosomes and you know uh, physiology and morphology and and psychology mm-hmm. for that matter, mm-hmm. um, but that. It's it just it couldn't be further from the truth that that means that you're not going to have any variability in uh, either like uh, phenotypes associated with sex or with sort of gender identity. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's yeah, that's been a, a huge point of misinformation in this um, conversation that's been happening. And do you feel like, again, like the the goal of that is ultimately to locate the definition on something that is currently at least fundamentally unchangeable, right? We can't change people's chromosomes yet. And so this allows for, again, like we were saying, that kind of, ha- they have to be stuck in the status quo in this kind of way. It seems like it, mm-hmm. right? Especially like I combined, mean, just... you know, combined with the uh, sort of fear mongering about, mm. um, you know, access to uh, treatments for dysphoria and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you know, no, let's talk about sort of there are, I think, complicated issues around identity that I think a lot of folks, even on the left, who are very sympathetic to these kind of issues, don't feel like they have very strong answers. Right. And it's like it's very difficult, I think, when people are coming at you with these very binary, concrete like the the world is this way kind of claims and your response is well i think things are a lot more complicated than that i don't really fully understand it i think a lot of people can feel uncomfortable sort of making those kinds of arguments i'm i'm curious in your research about these kinds of issues what are your thoughts about self id this comes up a lot i feel like in arguments as like it's a crux of the argument because some folks want to suggest that self ID ultimately is nothing more than someone claiming that they are X at a given point in time. And that what, you know, like trans advocates are are in support of is like literally anybody being able to show up on any given day and claim that they are any given gender. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that, uh, so I'm not, I'm not like an expert in the, in the area of identity, right. That's mm-hmm. a, 
that's a, a big area of psychological research. Um, but uh, from what I, I do know of this area, I'd say that identity runs a lot deeper than some of these people are, are sort of suggesting that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that that extends to, to gender identity as much as anything else. Right. So I don't know. So I, did you want to talk about like the, the trans medicalism sort of? Yeah. Well, that's, that's part of, of it. Yeah. Versus... So, I mean, I think one of the issues here that comes up is, you know, a response to that, like, well, people are just going to, you know, show up at a, a women's basketball competition and say they're a woman and so they can compete or something like that for just to give a like a like a ridiculous example that I hear thrown around frequently mm-hmm. right some people will often come back or or to give another example that I think is um you know women uh, trans women in prisons in female prisons like does a person who's going to prison just get to say well I'm a woman now you have to put me in a female prison and we have to respect that or something um and I think one of the responses you often see from sort of support like advocates of trans issues is well it's more complicated than that because it involves medical individuals making assessments based on psychological conversations with those persons or something like that and then there's a concern about does that then mean that we're sort of medicalizing people's identity in Mm -hmm. some kind of way so like i just i'm curious to tease apart the trade-offs around different models of self-id because i think a lot of times the the critics of trans advocates want to suggest that there's a they have a very simplistic notion of identity um and it's it's being used in a harmful kind of way i guess yeah yeah okay so and before before we get to that too mm-hmm. though i i, I just want to say like i it, it i don't want to it bothers me to even address certain kinds of arguments around this because they just mm-hmm. they just feel like boogeymen mm-hmm. like it it feels like manufactured problems and so I don't know this idea of like, well, you know, if we if we take people's identities seriously, if we take them at their word, and when they tell us that you know they're a woman or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, um, that that's going to open the door for all these predators, and we need to protect women, and 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 it just I don't I don't know that that's a that's a legitimate concern mm-hmm. at base. And so starting the argument there and and like having a debate on these other things, like using that as the as the sort of focal point, mm-hmm. I think is already problematic. I actually, I one hundred percent agree. I, I bring it up because there's there's going to be future conversations that I'm going to be having that specifically involve that point. And I'm I was just very curious to hear. And I, I am sympathetic that like um, there's no there's there's little to no evidence that this is a serious risk or anything like that. And also like philosophically mm-hmm. that like even if there were sort of a concern there this isn't the right way to be addressing it and that like a kind of strict biological determinism wouldn't solve your problem here or something like that no no i don't think it would um but yeah so so talk trans trans medicalism and these different perspectives yeah like how do you think like setting aside sort of fear-mongering do you have any sense of like what might be the most healthy and constructive model to understand sort of making these kinds of assessments? Yeah. I mean, so I, I should start out by saying that like, I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a newcomer to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sensitive to the fact that maybe my, my opinions on this aren't as, uh, I don't know. Evolved. Important. <laughs> huh? Evolved. 
<laughs> Good one. Yeah. I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, you know, as a result of, of doing that episode on Deborah, so like I, I've, I've sort of um, immersed myself in this conversation a lot more, right. I, I was, I was fairly ignorant of a lot of, a lot of this conversation that was happening around, around transgender issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my, my sense at this point, right. Is that you have some, some individuals who feel strongly that uh, so this this idea is called transmedicalism, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that like truly transgender individuals are those that experience gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And um, I I know that like not all transmedicalists believe that transition is required for somebody to be truly trans, but it seems to be the case that they kind of think that like medical transition is kind of the best quote unquote treatment. Mm-hmm. for medical or for gender dysphoria, whether or not somebody deci- decides to pursue it. Um, and then you have some folks who are, are identifying problems with transmedicalism, mm-hmm. right. Um, who are concerned that it's sort of, as you said, that it's, it's medicalizing things or it's um, uh, pathologizing, right. Mm-hmm. Gender identity in a certain way. And also that it's, it might be overly exclusive, that it doesn't seem to reflect the experience of all transgender individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I think you've referenced a couple of times that it has some really s- problematic policy implications, mm-hmm. especially in in a, like, yeah. yeah, especially in a society, yeah. right. Where medicalization is, is gatekeeped behind often huge financial burdens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so th- there are definitely policy implications for like access to transgender care and right. Who, who, who should be allowed in women's restrooms and prisons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sort of defaulting to this position of like needing to look for biological evidence and things like that in mm-hmm. order to validate identity. Like I, I do take those concerns seriously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I have like, excellent answers on these things. Um, I think I understand why um, trans medicalists are, are uh, interested in pointing to some of the literature that sort of says like, look here, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, mm-hmm. this is the proof that like, we're not lying about this experience that we have. Right. Because there's been an awful lot of lack of ex- acceptance and a lot of invalidation um, historically um, for not having sort of, conforming gender identities but I, I take these other concerns seriously too um mm-hmm. especially in terms of policy it does feel a lot like the conversation and this happens on all all almost all trans conversations it feels a lot like the conversations that were happening around gay identities or or sexual identities yeah. like 20 years earlier where you know there was a bunch of move to try to prove that like you know, people were gay innately or something, sometimes by advocates, right? Gay rights advocates who wanted to say, stop trying to convert people. This is not like a choice in that kind of way. And so they were trying to find these like biological proofs that it was not a choice. Whereas, you know, like there was, there was, so there's always this like football being thrown around of, you know, what mix of, of nature and nurture quote unquote is a particular thing as a sort of, Mm -hmm. um, as a proxy for a debate about like how malleable is that behavior and therefore what can our policies be around that behavior? It seems like. Right. Which is a conflation that I think is problematic in and of itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And it seems like, you know, people kind of gave up on the gay thing, right? Like it's, we're not there. I mean, there's less interest, I think, in trying to sort of prove 
you know, how does it happen? The stakes, it feels like the stakes have gone down sort of culturally yeah. around that. And I'm curious to see whether the stakes will go down or not on a lot of these trans issues as well. I think one reason that people, like the stakes remain very high in a lot of people's minds is because the there are implications in terms of medical decisions that are sort of more substantial than medical decisions that are made because of a person's sexuality. Um, and then, mm -hmm. of course, right, then that is compounded by the think of the children version of that argument, which gets into all of the like fear mongering about like this stuff being offered to really young kids or something. Um, but they like I think the reason they go in that direction is, of course, because you know, it's very hard to maintain the modern small L liberal identity badge while saying mm -hmm. I'm not okay with adults doing whatever they want with their own bodies. So it has to be yeah. we're pressuring children into doing these things with their bodies. Is that sort of your take on how, how people like so are putting these arguments forward? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um <sighs> <laughs> You seem unhappy. Like I Have I gotten to too voidy on you? <laughs> I just no, no. It's just <sighs> What is your sense about, like, I, again, I know it's fear-mongering, but, like, how would you allay someone's fears about these issues with regard to younger individuals, like, you know, getting getting treatments that are, like, harmful or not reversible or something like that? How do you, how do you feel like people can respond to those kinds of concerns? Okay, yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. Mm -hmm. So, one is that um, I think that, so one of the things that people like Deborah so point toward is that they're framing this push to be more accepting of gender diversity mm -hmm. as though it's like creating pressure to identify in gender diverse ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, I, I think that that's an inappropriate move. Mm -hmm. And so when, when a, when a child, especially, is is telling you that they have um, uh, that their gender right does not match the the gender that is assumed mm -hmm. um, right or doesn't match their sex at birth, um, I think it's worth taking that seriously because it's it's very much a claim that is running counter to a bunch of implicit and explicit sort of social and cultural pressure. Mm. So that would be the the first thing I would say. Um, so you, and I don't the, think yeah, so. The, the cultural urge to conform is much stronger, and so if the individual is making those claims at that point, you feel like that's and not and not just them like rebelling because they're young or something like that. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no. No. I mean, it's um, in in that recording uh, we we talked about a Vice News piece mm -hmm. where they were interviewing several uh, transgender youth and like. I don't think that there's anything that's more powerful than than sort of watching or, or hearing uh, mm -hmm. transgender gender individuals, especially young individuals, talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's it's very clear like how how much um, how much they're they're sort of pushing against a tide of expectations and assumptions. Um, and so I think it's worth taking claims like that seriously. Right? Mm -hmm. Just at its base. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but the the second thing I'd say about this is that um, you know, this is an emerging area of research, right? So we're, we're learning more as time goes by. But, but I think that the, the medical and, and scientific consensus around these things is actually based on, on quite a bit of, of good research at mm -hmm. this point. And what that research indicates is that uh, people, youths specifically, um, that want 
that want to pursue medical transition, right, mm-hmm. uh, tend to want to do that consistently, right? They tend to socially transition before puberty. Um, and then they tend to, it's a very high likelihood that those that socially transition before puberty are going to continue to want to transition, right, once puberty begins and they start, you know, mm-hmm. um, employing medical interventions. And satisfaction with medical medically transitioning tends to be very high, mm-hmm. right? And so at, at this point, the reason that um, these medical organizations are recommending gender affirmative care at this point is because we have evidence that it does seem to be, it does seem to lead to positive, positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that very much contradicts the position of people like so, who are saying that, you know, you, you need to be concerned about this because kids change their minds about things all the time. You know, it's, there's no guarantee. We can't predict who's actually going to benefit from, from medical transition. And so the only, the only real option is to wait and to mm-hmm. only give the option of medical transition to, to, to individuals who are legally adults, essentially. Right. Um, and no, sorry. yeah, the, evidence is not consistent with that position. So this would also be where we would see like the arguments around, you know, an overemphasis on deconversion stories, right? Yes. Essentially paralleling probably a emphasis on quote unquote conversion stories back during gay conversion therapy. I say back, mm-hmm. right? It's still around, but like, you know, yeah. as, as part of the defense of this kind of stuff, right? Is it, do you- right. And, and I mean, there are some genuine right deconversion stories, but is your sense that it is sort of like overemphasized, low, low frequency? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I really I know we're getting a little bit short on time. I was curious. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of at the meta level of what you are doing. Um, I asked you if we could talk a little bit about Psycom, and I thought you had a kind of a, a funny <laughs> reaction where you sort of don't necessarily see yourself as a part of or you didn't didn't sort of put it in those kinds of terms really do you sort of see yourself as doing psychom and like what is that or what how do you how do you characterize what you are doing in this kind of field (laughs) i i mean in retrospect i guess like i'm obviously doing psychom Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) um but no i i think my approach to this from the beginning has been sort of like very based on intuition I, I, you know, you, you were like, Hey, we should talk about psychom theories. And I was like, Oh, there's theories. That's, that's great. Uh-huh. Um, I had no idea. I read about some of them. It's, it's, uh, it's probably going to give me the yips, honestly, to, to have to direct attention toward this thing that I haven't really been. Oh, good. So I'm, I'm causing you trouble. Thinking about saying. Yes. Big great. time. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Absolutely. That's what um, I'm here for. <laughs> Make things worse. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, me too. Me too. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I think that, this is this is very similar to my introduction to teaching, honestly. So mm-hmm. I, I my background is at state schools in terms of my education. Mm-hmm. I'm now working at a small liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. So I came into this uh, into this faculty where people had like explicit training in pedagogy, and they you know they read the pedagogical literature, and this guides their approach to teaching. And all of the teaching I've done has been sort of like very intuitive and not based on theory. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but yes, I'm I guess it is science communication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you have you found any in your reading so far, any theories that you're sort of sympathetic to or that you feel like mirror what you've intuitively come around to yet? Or do you feel like you're doing kind of a mix of things? 
I, I think, yeah. So I, so I, I did some reading about, you know, this like deficit model versus dialogue model versus participation model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe you can tell me more about this if you've had your head in this literature. Yeah. So the deficit asset stuff comes up a lot, actually, in education psych. I read a bunch about that this year where it's, so basically the idea is the traditional model has been the student has some sort of deficit that the the teacher needs to correct, right? You're missing some bit of knowledge and we have to get you that bit of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Then the problem with the deficit model is that it tended to be the case that marginalized students are viewed as having deficits to a greater degree and in different ways than other students, especially on like language kinds of issues, for example. Um, So a lot of modern sort of social justice pedagogy has tried to shift away from the deficit model towards what they call the asset model, where it's about trying to discern, you know, what social, cultural, you know, various factors that an individual has provide assets for them in their educational process, essentially. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that the dialogue kind of stuff is one of the ways in which, you know, they've, they've shifted away from, uh, they used to call it, I think they call it, what do they call it? There's a talking point about this, the, um, the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's basically the switch from the like lecturing up front to like, engaging with the students and having them do group activities and things where they are actively participating in the learning process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because the, the, the way that that translates into something like public communication of science seems, Mm -hmm. seems tricky though. Right. Right. Because, um, I don't know. It it is assuming that you're, you're communicating like through media it always mm-hmm. is this kind of, at least in, in in some sense, it's always this one way thing. But like, I don't know. In reading about the deficit model, it, it I definitely did have sort of like a like a very averse kind of reaction to to thinking about science communication in that way. Like, mm-hmm. it seems to have some some assumptions built into it about I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Do you it feel like condescending? I guess. Yeah. Well, so one of the concerns about it is that it tends to be kind of elitist or condescending or um, in those kinds of ways. And like, I, th- I think you can complicate the picture some. I do think there is a place for talking about different ca- differences in capacities of different individuals um, and, you know, individuals like I, I have a deficit when it comes to foreign languages. There's just no other way to describe my inability to learn Same. a foreign language than like, I yeah. clearly am not well. And like people will come along and say, oh, well, it's just culture. And maybe it is like, maybe it's, you know, when I say I have this deficit, I don't mean, you know, my genes, right. In my DNA, I have a, a deficit here. I mean, you know, I grew up in the middle of the East coast of America where like 99% of individuals around me all spoke English. And like, I was never going to have you know, a reasonably bilingual experience and that that undercuts, Same. right? And that probably like shuts down the plasticity of the parts of the brain that allow for learning foreign languages. So there's those feedback kinds of of problems. Um, so like, yeah, let me ask one other thing that we talked about related to the psychom stuff and that's also related to sort of what you were saying about your intuitive experiences is that like, how do you see the curriculum for scientists and how is it sort of preparing them to engage with those parts of their world or are they sort of are are y'all at sort of at your own devices in terms of like deciding how you're going to try to communicate 
science to non-scientists. I never received any kind of formal instruction about science communication, Mm -hmm. at least not, not public science communication. All of the, all of the emphasis in, in my curriculum was very much about uh, how to, how to communicate to other scientists Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that, that is maybe shifting a little bit, you know, um, there's been, there's been some conversation recently that I think is really good about, um, like the way that scientific information is presented, uh, like on posters, mm-hmm. um, traditionally posters have been just sort of like shorter versions of academic papers, but there's no shift really in terms of the language that's being used. And a, a few years ago, somebody was like, Hey, no, we should, we should be, we should be making these posters in a way that makes them directly accessible to mm-hmm. people who, you know, don't have training in the area, um, don't have exposure to the jargon in a specific area and, and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe science curricula are changing a little bit in terms of, of, of that kind of emphasis. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be good. Mm-hmm. What about, yeah, related to that, what about like history of philosophy and, and like philosophy of mm-hmm. science? Do you feel like, sorry, um, not history of philosophy, history of science and philosophy of science? Mm. That needs to be, <laughs> we were talking about this not too long ago. Yeah. Um, it, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't have exposure to either history of science or philosophy of science mm-hmm. in graduate school. I feel like the the exposure I got was like very, very sort of narrowly on these specific empirical literatures, right? And the the context of findings within that literature, but without much reference to uh, the larger kind of conversation that all of these areas of inquiry were connected to. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, to go back to the the um, uh, gender differences in cognition, right? If I had had any exposure to the origins of some of those questions from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. it would have completely changed my view of that from the beginning, right? I'm reading this amazing book, essentially, that's talking about women's exclusion in, from science, right? As soon as it was professionalized, right? Centuries ago. Which book? And that was like, huh? Which book? Uh, it's called The Mind Has No Sex. Oh, Question mark. Yeah, it's very, very good. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a straight up history book, you know, like this. But yeah, so um, I feel like there's there's a, a way in which a lot of science education can be kind of decontextualized in a way that's that's problematic, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I'm there's so much that I'm learning now because I'm I'm sort of trying to educate myself on on these discourses that have been happening sort of in parallel mm-hmm. with scientific discourses for for centuries, right? And that are really really necessary, I think, in terms of being able to properly interpret scientific findings. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I I don't know I don't know how much of, a, of an explicit push it is right now to start building uh, history of science and philosophy of science into curricula. But I think that, that everybody would, would benefit from that. What would you cut from the curriculum if you needed to make room for those classes? Is that, is that like, it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a hard question. Is it math? Would you cut math? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. The methodology stuff is core, right? You mm-hmm. have to, you have to have, the methodology stuff be be central, I think. Um, but you know, like I so 
it, it, that's a hard question to answer because I loved every content course that I took in grad school. Right. right. And I, we got into really interesting areas and I, I don't, I wouldn't want to lose any of those, but I think you could cut two content courses mm-hmm. in whatever area you're specializing in and replace those with something that puts what you're learning in, in sort of a broader context. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sympathetic to that. I think it, it would uh, be valuable. I had similar experiences, I feel like, in the philosophy world where, you know, you get the history of philosophy in the sense of like, and then Kant argued with Hume kind of stuff, but you don't get the <laughs> like, and then they both fully agreed about how black people aren't people kind of part of it, where it, like, that would be helpful, I <laughs> think. when important. you're important. Right, it feels like it would be valuable for analyzing their philosophical views a little bit. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. It does. It does. It is. And, and I, you know, not, I, I hate that Sam Harris seems to come up in like every thing that I record at this point. Um, but there is an attitude that I think that he crystallizes, you know, particularly well mm-hmm. that to consider the context around a finding or, you know, a, a model, right. Or a theory, um, that the context, the historical context, social context is, is not necessary to interpret it. Mm-hmm. That you can interpret it in a vacuum, essentially, right. uh, and that if you add in in that context, you're just going to be introducing bias in, ter- in terms of the way that people understand it. And I, I, I think that this is one point. This is like one of his fundamental points of wrongness mm-hmm. is how he thinks about about those contexts and how important they are. I, I agree. I feel like there's this view that like science is like this pile of facts that you can just like look at and understand rather than like it always being constructed within these various kinds of like this information is is contextualized within these kinds of narratives and you need to like understand where those narratives are coming from i've been reading um on break a bunch of these like nonfiction about the sort of history of science stuff like um gods of the upper air and learning to divide the world and and like what you find are these scientists were fighting tooth and nail against like, you know, or around the social contexts of what they were saying, because it's never, it's never done in isolation. It's always this active conflict. And, and like, maybe people want to say, ideally, they'd rather that it would be done in isolation, but like, we're nowhere anywhere remotely near that in the real world. So like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It seems like to pretend that we're already there. It seems like pretending, you know, that we're already past racism or something like that precisely mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah that's that's not really even an analogy there i think that that's one mm-hmm. <laughs> one domain in which this this sort of context thing um comes up a lot right it's these views on race yeah for sure um so i gotta i gotta torture you here in a second before we do that i'm curious are there mm-hmm. any um any other like sci related topics pet projects like things that you think that you wish that culture would stop talking about this stupid science topic and talk about the thing that you think is the most important science topic uh, in the world, besides <laughs> obviously spider palps, right? That's clearly at the top of the list, but. That was going to be my answer. Oh, okay. Um, sorry. Sorry. I stole your answer. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if there's something that I feel like is being ignored or that something's overshadowing exactly i do this would be a topic for another recording i guess but like i do have a lot of thoughts about the replication crisis that are kind of evolving mm. um you like mean like the, you like the conventional be, wisdom on it is wrong or something it's yeah maybe maybe i'm not sure mm. it, it's just i've noticed that it's it's intersecting with um some of these conversations about uh cancel culture mm-hmm. and academic freedom in some odd ways that i'm 
that I have questions about. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to, yes, maybe not a good. <laughs> no, it's a good tease. I, I'm <laughs> curious to know more. I mean, I, I do think there is, there is this weird relationship with the culture wars and social psychology and evolutionary yeah. psychology and replication stuff where it's like, everybody wants to wield a replication crisis against their enemies' findings while like sort of claiming their findings have been sufficiently replicated or something or uh yeah so yeah i think there's definitely something there mm-hmm. i do too okay well topic that, for another day yeah no i guess that means that you have to be tortured now so this is the enlightening round enlightenment comes from within oh boy Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a list of things. And because you are a scientist, you should have no trouble telling me which of these things are real and not real. Right? You're just going to look in your giant pile of science facts and tell me which of these things exist. Uh, does that make sense? Do you, do you understand the rules? Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> you spent can... all that time talking about context and, you know, yep. stuff. And then this is like, no. Okay. Yep, yep. Cool. Yep. You are allowed to provide zero context here. That is the, the name of the game. So uh, mm. let's get us started here, right? Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real or not real. So the external world, real or not real? Real. Ah, colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Real. Money. Real. <laughs> Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Uh, hit me where it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it hurts, really. <laughs> Interesting. Parasocial relationships. Right? Yeah, there you go. All right, not, fair enough. not real. Okay. Holes like a hole in the ground. Real. Uh, chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Yeah, real. Oh, real. quite the realist here, aren't we? How yeah, do you feel? Yeah, you yeah. survived. Yeah. <laughs> Not a huge fan. I had a, I had a real sandwich last night. Boy, Did you? It was pretty good. That was, oof, that was fantastic. Real sandwich, very real. Yeah, <laughs> it's really more of a classification kind of problem. Like, what kind of thing is a sandwich? Right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See. Well. Yeah. No. 
<laughs> um, so this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, Lindsay. I should also mention, actually. Um, yeah, thank you. I want you to know you've now been uh, without your consent. So this is this is technically um, unethical. Uh, this this data has been put to use by various individuals recently on Twitter. So folks who are interested in looking at breakdowns of the enlightening round should check out those. Um, threads on Twitter. It is, of course, uh, the very poisoned fruit of a very poisonous tree. So don't take any of it remotely seriously. Um, but it is good for That's a exciting. laugh, right? Um, and now you're part of that data set. So congratulations. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I'm a, I'm a little upset that you didn't give me an informed consent form, but uh, I, I retrospectively give my consent for you to use my data. I apologize as as a mad scientist. <laughs> it's technically against our code. Um, but I appreciate you coming <laughs> on and doing this, Lindsay. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you otherwise? All the various many places. Um, the, what, the podcast? Or yeah, all the podcasts, the Twitter handles, the, you know, okay. the who's he wants it. Oh, yeah, I do. I am on Twitter. I don't remember what my handle is, though. I don't really <laughs> you don't use it. It's like Losterman42 or something. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I've got I've got podcasts. I have to co-hosting serious inquiries only and what the fuck downloads from the secret ghost library we talk about ghosts and we're on the same page great That's where people can find me great well thank you so much this has been a lot of fun yeah thank you as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible thanks to our newest patron michael shore and thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, CampQuest.org, 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 Jess Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And uh, thanks, as always, to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. We recently had one drop on learning to divide the world by Lewinsky. So definitely check that out. Most of all, in every moment of every day, remember you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.